You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your host, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, Kat Kalin, and special guest host, Mike Glover. Hey, Bryce, you there? Yes. Are you in the car as well? Uh, I'm about to jump back in it. We uh, stopped to refuel our bellies and our tanks, and now my wife's about to refuel the baby's stomach too. So, <laughs> but now I'm about to jump back in the car. Okay. The commander has told me it's time to go. You know, technology is freaking wonderful, isn't it? Especially when you're old. <laughs> Must be talking about you, Bryce. Oh. <laughs> are we talking physically, mentally? What are we talking about? I, I, whatever you're talking about is different ages. <laughs> First off, Bryce, thanks for coming on the show, man. I, I'm glad you got a chance to come on here. And I, like I had mentioned earlier, I kind of gave you a little bit of heads up, Mike, you know, introducing you and your background to Bryce. So, uh oh, what was that? South. <laughs> Somebody's traveling. <laughs> Speaking of technology, who is she, Mike? Sweet. <laughs> no one's supposed to know about her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk about this topic because, um, you know, that's a big discussion that I've been having lately as far as op tempo and just the, the grind that us – special operations guys are going through right now and i'm i'm kind of working on the back end of it you know and seeing the the effects that it's having on rangers and, and pretty much everybody's special operations so i'm glad that that we ha- we're talking about this i actually saw an article just the other day that made me think of this a lot because it was talking from commanders in the soft community who didn't want to be named of course talking about the current mission situation, how they have scarce resources, they're sustaining higher casualties in the last eight years or so, and strain on families and the whole bit. And of course, the new administration that's coming around the pike, they're they're concerned about could some of these missions be moved on to a conventional force to allow them to focus more on countering terrorism? Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I think that's... And Bryce has probably seen it, but that's that's kind of started already. I mean, it's I think maybe 2007, 8, 9, when things were changing in Afghanistan and Iraq, you started seeing conventional forces kind of picking up the mission sets and different regions of the world. They were kind of picking up the slack by no fault of our own, where we were dropping kind of the ball, like in Africa, for, for example, and you had like National Guard units conventional National Guard units um, doing FID, you know, foreign internal defense, or doing planning of counterinsurgency and all these high-speed missions that kind of outside of the realm. So, yeah, we saw the trickle effects of that early on, so I, it's no surprise to me either. Yeah, Bryce, you were talking about how you're starting to see the effects of that, especially from probably a lot of the guys that are still on active duty. And, of course, there's always been a burnout factor within, you know, Ranger Bat, especially if we're talking about that in the soft community. And I'm sure it's within a lot of the areas of the soft community that that burnout factor starts taking place over long periods of multiple deployments, especially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got guys on eight, nine, ten deployments. And and honestly, that I don't really see that as the issue more so than the fact that most of these guys, they're they're coming off this high of an op tempo and they're they're throwing in the towel to their chain of command basically going 
you know what, I, I can't do this anymore or I don't want to do this. Can we can we discuss options? And they're basically being tossed to the side and treated in such a way that it leaves a, a sour taste in their mouth. And that's not how we should treat our, you know, especially the soft community when they're wanting to get out. They they leave essentially with this rotten taste. OK, well, I've been just I just been I've been treated like a shit bag now. And now you're, you expect me to get out and assimilate into civilian life after I've spent the majority of my life overseas fighting for this country. And, I mean, that's what I'm seeing a lot of. Yes, yeah, I, I have the same experiences with sustainability of soft personnel. I mean, that's a huge, huge problem that I don't think that we, we keep tabs on at all. I mean, Command Sergeant Major Mike Pritz, who's a contributor to your show, was my CSM when I got out. And I had 18 years in. I was a team sergeant. I was a master sergeant. And we had just got done standing up that commanders and extremist force for Africa. And I told him I was getting out. And he was probably the only one in my chain of command that cared to even engage me in a conversation about, hey, why are you getting out? And boom, uh, what are the issues you're having? Yeah. And so on a personal level, it was, it was uh, pretty compelling that, you know, he was there for me and he cared about sustaining me in the military. But outside of him, I don't think I, that one person in my chain of command had anything to say. I mean, I, I got put in for my get out of the army award. It was a, uh, I got put in for an MSM, which is an MSM. Uh, it's a meritorious service medal. It's not a big deal, but they downgraded it to an ARCOM, an army accommodation medal. What? And this disparity of all these, like, just internal issues that are really having a, a profound impact on soft individuals. You know, we don't treat soft uh, operators as units or elements. We treat it, we should treat them as individual on a case by case basis and, and put a little bit more care into their careers. Yeah. I just, I just had a conversation with an old school ranger today um, about getting involved with the Darby project. And he told me when he, so he served five years at first bat and when he was ready to get out, like ETS out of the military, he, they were still in their they were they were in the jungle fatigues, black beret, jump jump boots. And when he when he was ready to ETS, they made him change into BDUs, wear leg boots, wear a patrol cap, and go into a separate formation of getting out. Like man, <laughs> how are you going to treat somebody like that? We're talking basic leadership here, guys. You know, trying to take care of your people and, and look out for their welfare. Yeah, I think it goes, I think it's part of just that alpha mentality too, you know? If you're not with us, you're against us kind of mentality thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the, you know, we're our own worst enemies and, and within the soft career. And then the fact that you have such a short turnover with career officers and soft and with, you know, positioning of NCOs, not commissioned officers, and special operations, I mean, they don't get that continuity they don't get that rapport and then it's a doggy dog world it's kind of, it's kind of sad to even say man it is i mean i just i uh, i do a little bit of work with the otc and brag uh doing their non-hostile combatives stuff and just just being there and seeing the age of guys going through that particular program i it, it just goes to show how spun up we are right now as a special operations community. Wow, is that you, Bryce? Are you out there next to an airport? I just have semi trucks going by. <laughs> sounds sounds like an F-14 or something flying over. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, some believe that we're going to be 
of course, facing greater threats, China, Russia, other fronts and everything. So, of course, utilizing our special operations, if they're going to be primarily focused on counterterrorism. And, you know, it would seem to me that we would start utilizing a lot more of the missions, like how to train the Afghani forces and stuff on how to shoot, as an example. You know, maybe more conventional forces can do some of those missions. Yeah, I mean, that's that's Abrams Charter at, at its best right there. We should be, you know, especially in the Ranger community, we should be we should be building leaders up inside the Ranger community and then using that experience to train conventional armies the way we want to see them operate. And then we should employ them to teach these outside forces and leave the the bare bones and the, you know, the grunt work of what we're going to end up doing with the next stage in you know warfare that we're getting into and leave that to the special operations community we shouldn't be using resources like that to teach other armies yeah and I, you know conventional forces as well it's 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 weird but you know the power and strength in conventional forces is the fact that you have a show of force and you have the utility of utilizing a conventional force to leverage power uh to leverage influence but everybody nowadays thinks that since you're in a conventional force, you know, you're a, you're a captain or a major running a platoon or a company in the infantry that you need to get your gun on. And that's your responsibility. Um, it, it's not, you know, everybody wants to be in action or, or you know, check their OER bullet or the NCOER bullet. <laughs> but the reality is, you know, the world in which we live in now, which is kind of the world we've always lived in, it's just it's a little bit more overt now is in encountering terrorism and it's irregular and really special operations should be at the tip of that spear um they always have but now we're getting a lot of mission creep from conventional forces nothing against conventional forces but i mean i was i spent four years in the conventional army uh the reason i went into special operations is because i knew where my place was my place was a conventional fight a conventional force and if there wasn't a were declared, then I was sitting on the sideline. That's why, you know, I went to selection. Yeah, and we should definitely have our hands untied like they are right now for special operations because it, it it's all well and good to have a, a shit hot special operations community, but if they if they're not allowed to do anything, then what's the point? Yeah, most definitely. And you know, I mean, I think because of the uh, high op tempo. We're going to probably have to start bringing in more forces or at least looking at the demand and whether or not we have enough. So, if, if of course, if you're hearing a lot about the burnout factor and you're hearing a lot of people that are automatically rotating, you're hearing from the families and stuff of the stress that's being placed on them, it seems like it's going to be that much harder to try to fill those those spaces that are needed. I just, you know, it, what you're saying is true, and, and I think it's already happened. When Command Sergeant Major Ferris took over uh, SOCOM, and you know he moved from JSOC to SOCOM, he had this big imperative that he was going to create this red, amber, green cycle that we stuck to of taking care of special operations soldiers and their families and ensuring that we didn't reach this tracer burnout that we're experiencing. Well, the reality is that's never going to happen. And the reality mm-hmm. is the grind never stops, and the families are still affected and the soldiers are adversely affected, the only difference now is they've checked their block in creating a protocol that nobody executes. So um, I think it's, you know, we're, we're probably 10 years too late on that, uh, which is identifying the problem. I think the fix is probably somewhere in between. It's somewhere at the tactical level, implementing 
an actual red, amber, green where you're keeping guys on rotations. But again, it's it's part of the bureaucracy, part of the problem, which is an institution where you got you know guys coming in trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to get their big OER glory, and then they change or shift things, and it takes the Joes or it takes the younger NCOs out of their uh, their comfort zone, and they, they can't they can't bed down. It's a lot of inter- internalized issues that that we're facing that are probably systemic of special operations period. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we really need to get a handle in the special operations community on being able to figure out how to keep guys in the community, but give them the breathing room and the time off from being operational so that they can fix themselves, be at home with their families, you know, decompress somewhat, but not feel like they have to completely leave the community to do so. And, you know, th- with everything that entails when somebody does that, I, I that, that point you just brought up is in retention. It just blows my mind how every command sergeant major, every commander will concentrate their efforts on recruiting and assessing new pools and new candidates and these big drives to get these guys Ugh. off the streets. And it's like, dude, where's the sustainment plan? Where Where's the plan to take care of the dudes that you just spent millions of dollars on, years of resources, and they're, they're experienced combat leaders that are going to affect the fighting force for years to come, and you're worried about recruiting a dude, uh, uh, you know, off the streets. Let's concentrate on keeping the dude that's already been through the training, who's got the combat experience. Yeah, absolutely, you know, a guy that goes through the pipeline specifically, you know, like especially on the SF world, because your y'all's pipeline is so long that by the time somebody gets out of it, you know, they're they're halfway through their first enlistment. Then you throw them into multiple deployments, and then they really don't feel like they're. I won't say that they're not valued, but there's there's nothing there to work on them personally. So they're like, screw this. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go get out. One, because they're they're not feeling loved, if you will. Two, they're looking at everybody else that's getting out and having a blast or doing whatever, you know, all of us tactical people do. And it's very enticing when we we could definitely set up some form of especially Outside of the chain of command, it, we could set something up to where we create a mentorship program, especially for guys that are even thinking about getting out, where we can sit them down and go, hey, why are you getting out? Let's have this discussion. I am not in your chain of command. I don't care if you get out or not, but what I want to do is I want to have a detailed conversation. I want to know what your plan is, and if you don't have one, then let's put one together. So if you do get out, you're, you're transitioning the best and most effective way you possibly can. But the ultimate goal is to retain those guys. Good God, but that's just what we used to do back in the day as NCOs anyway. You know what I mean? As a leader and a commander, that was something that you did with your troops on an ongoing basis rather than having to rely on an external source, whether it's a retention NCO or even someone like you're mentioning, Bryce, which I love the idea from a mentorship program, but isn't that something that we're supposed to be doing as non-commissioned officers and officers anyway? I'd say that we are, but you know, you know how it is. You don't want to tell you don't tell your chain of command the truth. Yeah, and yeah. somebody like me, you know, with the Darby Project, I could go to regiment, and I'm, I am completely unbiased to to what regiment wants. I have their best interests in mind, but the ultimate goal is ensuring that that ranger is doing exactly what he should be doing. And sometimes that might be, hey, I think we need to rethink this getting out thing because you don't really have a solid plan. 
you're, you're saying you're getting out because you hate your leadership. Well, that leadership's going to exist on the outside too. Absolutely. And I, I feel like they're going to be more honest to somebody that has zero pull in, in, in their, you know, their career or whatever. And it's just a personal opinion of mine. I would love to utilize that in a way that we could start setting the example for those non-commissioned officers to say, Hey, I bet we could do that as well. So, so it kind of, you, we're attacking it from both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I also think part of the problem is, uh, you know, internally, I remember when I had my detachment, like, you know, I'm a big proponent of counseling and career progression and mentoring my guys to get them to an end state to, you know, let them or assist them or facilitate them in achieving their goals. So locally we were good, you know, in our little bubble, the institutional problem is we didn't have incentives in place for these guys to do anything else. I mean, when I, when I was in the infantry in the nineties, you remember this, Rob, it, you know, we had college options, right? right, right. Where you can go at, like, it, it shouldn't be a college. You shouldn't have to enlist in the army longer to get the option to go to college Absolutely. as an NCO. When, when you have officers who are giving opportunities to get their to, through the advanced programs, get their master's degrees while you have NCOs who are, you know, chomping at the bit to get a break from combat to get off the saw gun and, and get on the books so they can have something to hold on to when they get out of the military. It's like, dude, those incentives, those incentives should be there for soldiers, but they're not. Um, they, you look at the incentives that they're, that we're currently giving soldiers, it comes in the, in the form of cash and that that's not good enough. I mean, it's no not way. good enough to take care of our guys, especially when, uh, we have, you know, in a lot of these units, for lack of better terms, lackluster leadership available to these guys. Well, you think about that master's program that you're talking about, Mike, you know, where an officer has the opportunity to go back to school to complete his master's degree. And in some cases, he can step away or she can step away for a year or two to go to any university that they get accepted to. If you took that to the the enlisted side, it would allow for that burnout factor that we were talking about earlier to step away, to get their education, to focus on something new, get re-energized, and then come back and apply those principles or those things that they learned and that that time that they had away to reflect back into the troops. Because that's really what we're talking about is that that's kind of been the disconnect is that they haven't had that downtime. And so there's a little sympathy maybe by current NCOs and current officers on those who feel like they're being left behind or that they're getting burnt out. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. You know, it's but just like that, you're saying, you know, the, they're they're offering the officer that but not the enlisted corps it just goes to show that the enlisted corps is the backbone of the military for sure. Right. It definitely puts the enlisted side at a, you know, kind of a disadvantage. disadvantage. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that there's always been this kind of disparity and differences between the enlisted and officer, but we're talking about today's time frame. We're not talking 100 years ago or in today's world we should make provisions, especially if we're going to be holding our forces to a long-term combat situation. As an example, like, and I hate, I don't even like bringing up this example because I don't I don't want to be identified like I'm I'm busting you know other MOSs or other jobs um, balls in the community. But I could be you know me or Bryce could be retired 20 years you know jumping out of airplanes like hard life you know just broken and from combat. And we would get the same base pay, which is 50% of our base pay in whatever rank we retired, <laughs> as a cook, as a as a finance clerk, as somebody who, you know, it, it, it's not their fault, but, you know, who sits in an office who doesn't get broken like we get broken 
and we're getting the same base pay. When you look at our careers and the incentive pays that we're getting through the through our military career, that's not even recognized in our careers on the outside when we get out. So there's no incentives at all, especially in special operations when it comes to uh, special forces or special operations and, and career progression. Would yeah, you- I, I completely agree with that. You know, like you had said, Mike. You know, we're they're focusing totally on trying to get that 17 or 18 year old, you know, wet wet behind the ears guy to enlist in the military when we should be focusing our efforts on that 24, 25 year old that's already spent four or five years in the military. We've trained him and th- there needs to be that incentive. Like, yeah, you know, that the the camaraderie and the rapport of being a ranger or being SF is great, but it doesn't hold the same standard as it used to. And that's not because the commu- us, the community made it that way. The rest of the military made it that way. I mean, I remember in 2001, before I even went to through RIP, I remember walking through Fort Benning. If you saw a dude with a black beret on, that was like, whoa, you know? But right. now it's just like, eh, whatever. It was a different world back in those time frames. Now I think a lot of the conventional army or a lot of the conventional military kind of view that well, we're all in the same playing field when it comes to the combat operations. Whether that's right or wrong, I think that's a lot of the, the belief that's there. Yep. Let's move on. You know, when we're talking about the transition of the military, we're also talking about this same community. And of course, you know, Bryce, you recently were selected as the director of the Darby Project. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that supports the Ranger community today. You know, first and foremost, I even to this day, I, I still feel incredibly honored and humbled to be in this position. And I mean, ever since I got out in 2007, I've been trying to figure out a way how I can give back to the special operations community. And like we've been talking about, the transition period for special operations, rangers, you name it, is is not correct right now. You know, guys are guys are hard charging, giving everything they have, and then they make the decision to quit or they make the decision to stop. They get treated like crap and then they get thrown basically out of the unit and they're expected to just kind of go through the, tr- the, the standard ACAP process. And from what I'm seeing, guys are kind of just getting out with this like, you know, bag in one hand, like, okay, now, now what do I do? And my goal, our goal at the Darby Project is to create a, a network of guys that have already gone through this and put them in position to where when we've got Ranger Joe getting out of 3rd Battalion, we can hopefully a year before he gets out, if they do decide to get out, we can mentor them and we can put them with a ranger in the community that they're going to go back into. And from day one, when they get out, they'll have somebody like-minded that they can talk to when times get tough. They have somebody that's vetted some resources for maybe job placement, housing assistance, financial planning assistance. We just we just bridge that gap that is there right now in the in the army, specifically in special operations, that guys just feel pretty much tossed to the side to fend for themselves. And part of it is our own internal thought process. I don't need help. I'm tougher than that. Suffer in silence. Well, if we can build a community where at the very least guys are getting together in positive scenarios like hikes or outdoor events, shooting events, I think we we can change the dynamic that's happening right now of guys just getting this 
sort sour taste in their mouths about their service or about getting out basically are you structured right now that you could probably even handle the mentoring capacity that we were talking about earlier that if you have a soft individual that's saying hey listen i just want to reach out and talk to somebody outside my command who maybe has been there blazed the trail and and listen to them give me advice because for some they may have walked out the door with a better taste but then they realize you know what the, the the pasture's not necessarily greener on the other side. It's a septic tank out here as well. So maybe I needed to, to stay in and I didn't have somebody to be able to give me that type of mentorship. Are you structured that way that you could help? At the moment, we're we're getting it set up fairly well. And we have we have fairly decent resources and connections, you know, in Columbus, in Savannah, in Seattle. There there are guys that have been operating even before I came on board. Uh, as Darby Project chapter presidents that are doing awesome things. But I'm actually the first full-time director at the Darby Project. So Grant McCary, the one that started the Darby Project, his idea is still alive, but there was just no full-time kind of commitment to it. And it's going to take, take a little while to continue to create a bigger network, my goal first being to establish 10 individual region reps like the FEMA map, that we can start to have basically this network from me down to them, hopefully to the state level, then to the city level, that at the very least, we can create some, some form of reoccurring event where there are mass populace of rangers, special operations, that at the very least, they can meet once a week or once a month in some form of breakfast or shooting event or, or something like that. Uh, that that's the end goal. Um, Right now, you know, we're kind of shooting from the hip just because it's very, very early on in the, in the cycle, but we're set up to do that. It's, it's more of getting regiment on board at this point. I'm, uh, I'm actually headed to Ranger Regiment in a week or so to, to start talking with them about that. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. I haven't been down to Fort Benning in a long time. Do you haven't been back to the compound in a while? Have not, nope. Oh, wow. Quite an anniversary coming for you. Yeah. Yes. Between going back in a week and then, uh, you know, next next June is the 75th anniversary of Ranger Regiment and Ranger Rendezvous. And we're uh, we're going to have a big presence there as well. And I'm just so excited to be to be doing this. Yeah, that's awesome. Actually, I was down in Benning. I saw your boss down there a couple months back and boy, has Benning changed quite a different <laughs> quite a different fort now from what it used to be. Yeah. A big part of the goal, too, is we need to connect and and mingle, if you will, the veteran community and the civilian community, because we can create our own little pockets of of veteran things going on all we want. But that doesn't help us assimilate back to civilian life. There has to be some form of cohesion in there. You know, when it comes to the, the Darby Project and what you guys are doing specifically for the Rangers, I think you guys are doing a great job of trying to identify where are those gaps and weaknesses. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the burnout factor that these guys are going through and how the op tempo is changing. And it's going to even cause greater burnout. And there's much more of a need to establish some kind of mentorship program to retain them. I mean, retention, like we've been talking about, is going to be a major portion of that. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, with, you know, it not just being a ranger specific task um you know our our parent company is gallant few and they they hold the same mission as us but more on a veteran wide platform and we just kind of kind of saw a need you know with the ranger community and 
SF community too, guys tend to kind of stick around their own people. So that's where the Darby project kind of came around was, Hey, we need, we need to have a Ranger specific kind of network that can reach out a little bit. And I've, I've seen this, you know, in action, we had a, we had a Ranger reach out to us a couple weeks ago with, um, you know, that was really struggling. And in his moment of crisis, it was, you know, I'm, I'm only talking to bat boys. I'm only talking to bat boys. Okay. Got it. And thankfully, you know, the stars aligned for us that just so happened that we had bat boys that lived where he did. And we had bat boys that in a, a facility that we were trying to get him to go to. I mean, it was just, things couldn't have lined up any more perfect than that, but it just goes to show that we kind of tend to stick with our own at the very, you know, especially in times of crisis too. Yeah, most definitely. Well, Bryce, man, I appreciate you coming on and talking about, you know, all the stuff the Darby Project's doing and especially around the current up-tempo and the things that we're facing. And hopefully you guys will be able to, to build this thing in such a way that we can provide the mentoring as we go back and help these guys before they get off active duty because some of them might choose a different route or a different approach if they had somebody have a, an opportunity to talk with them. Yeah, every every person that I, you know, every veteran that I come across lately, I've been asking in that that question. Did anyone outside of your chain of command ever come to you and ask you why are you getting out? And I have yet to have a single person tell me, "Yes, I did." And I feel like that's that's an issue. And because the next question is, "How were you treated at, when you were getting out?" I was treated poorly. Yeah. Yes, we need to completely fix that. Yeah. I mean, when you've got a you got a sergeant major that's saying the exact same thing. We've got a definite problem here. Like you? Yeah, that was your cue, man. That was a sergeant major bit. So I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of Bryce and and leaning forward with those kind of efforts and trying to support his own community because I mean, just as well as he knows that I mean, if we don't take care of our own, nobody's going to take care of us because institutionally, anything that's that's ran by the mill or by the government it typically fails when it comes to taking care of, uh, of soldiers. So we got to take care of our own. And, and that, that battle buddy concept, that Ranger buddy concept is kind of at the core ethos of what regiment and the Rangers are all about. And I think it's a, it's nothing but good stuff. Have a good one, buddy and safe travels to you. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks, Mike. I really appreciate your words. And uh, I love, I love following everything you do on social media. It's uh, the positivity is what we need in the community doing positive things setting the example these are the things that we need we need to see especially as civilians now yeah i appreciate it man take care you can find more information about the darby project by going darbyproject.org or searching for the darby project on either facebook twitter or instagram and learn more about that and be able to provide donations so what's been going on with you, Mike? Because I know that you've got a lot of things going on. I recently saw that you've established a nonprofit organization as well. Yeah, I just I just started a uh, a nonprofit. It's a uh, I just filed for five hundred one c three in the state of California, and it's called First Responders First. And our whole mission statement is in the military and in getting out and and working with law enforcement. I've seen a lot of deficiencies in the way first responders are one treated, but to internally in their own organizations, how they're treated by policymakers within their communities, whether that's not allocating the proper budgets, constraining their ability to do their job, or just the amplified media um, drama that first responders are, are blanketed 
uh, and given a bad name uh, for a couple, a few people's uh, bad acts. So the deficiency I saw that I could that I could fix is, you know, taking charitable donations, taking um, expendable income that taxpayers want to give, and creating a narrow focus of equipping and training these first responders with things that they don't have. Um, an example would be, you know, a- anything from standard weapon systems that are just completely shot out and, and, and that functional to courses on decision-making or courses on utilizing batons and, you know, specialized training that these guys, you know, they'll get a snippet of it maybe in, in, in their basic academy, but they don't get any advanced training or, or sustainment training outside of their post-training, which typically isn't the best of training. So, you know, it's, it's a new, it's a new concept for us and, and we kind of want to facilitate these guys with, a lot of the network that we already have in the, in the gun community and the tactical community and, and, and the mindset community of all these smart guys who know a lot about how they operate and improve their ability to do their job instead of what it seems like lately is popular to do is inhibit or restrain their ability to do their job. Now, these are not like SWAT type individuals. These are regular field officers that are going through the training that you're providing. Yeah. Re- recently uh, I, I teamed up with a, um, a Department of Homeland Security program that's uh, Homeland Security funded, but it's a counterterrorism program for the state of California, addressing some of the counterterrorism issues that California specifically is facing, as well as as well as the rest of the United States. Um, so it's like a five-day course where they teach counterterrorism, which involves you know IEDs, decision making, different tactics, um, mitigating risk, and we come in and we teach the, some of the tactical portions and we, and we teach some of the scenarios. Uh, we got an invite uh, on that. You know, it's completely free of charge. We don't charge anything and we just do it just to stay involved and, and uh, do the best that we can and giving these guys the best tools necessary uh, to face the problems that they're facing. Now, is the nonprofit going to be supporting a lot of the families as well? Is that what part of the mission objective is? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, one of the one of the issues that we uh, we saw recently in working with uh, like South Lake Tahoe Police Department, for example, it's a small department. You know, South Lake Tahoe is a specifically geographically, it's a very expensive place to live because, you know, it's vacation homes. It's it's got two tourist seasons, summer and winter. And so the officers that police their own community aren't subsidized like like other places in the United States with a cost of living subsidy to, to allow them to live in the own, their, their own communities that they police. So these guys, because they don't get that allowance have to live in Nevada and travel, you know, from middle-class Nevada to go into upper-class South Lake Tahoe to police these areas. And that to me, to me, that should be like at, at the congressional level where it's like, mandated that if a patrol officer works in a standardized patrolling and policing of that that community and it's outside of his income then he should be given the subsidy the housing allowance or the per diem to be able to live in that community i mean it's just insane that is kind of crazy thankfully it only happens in that one area have you started seeing it more and more no it's it's pretty remote because uh the fact that most departments can't get away with it. Um, I don't know. South Lake's a little bit different because it's it's rural, meaning it's like, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere as opposed to like Santa Barbara or Santa Ana where 
they're they're the high some of the highest paid departments in um, the United States, but they they can't get away with that. I think South Lake is the exception. That it, it comes, you know, all these issues that we hear from police departments, whether it's sheriff's departments or city, they're both constrained by budgets. They're both constrained by policymakers' decisions. So we just kind of want to fill that gap. And and I know there's a lot of people out there who have expendable income, even myself, who wants to give these guys money and time, but they don't have the pathway to get it there. And they, they sure as hell don't have a nonprofit that they trust. And so part of our mission as well is to develop off the off the get-go a mindset of transparency, of open communication, of showing our books all the time. You know, we're going to post all of our, our budgets online for everybody to see. I want, you know, Miss Susan from Modesto, California, I want her to be able to go online and see where her charitable donation helped pay for specialized equipment that assisted um, SWAT officers in, in the county to be able to go after the drug dealers um, who are taking her town down and her to be able to see that transparently. Transparency is the name of the game these days, especially when it comes to a 501. I mean, everybody's got one of those out there. It seems these days there's so many of them that, you know, people want to know, how are you spending my dollars? If I'm going to donate my heart in earn cash, I want to know how you're going to utilize that. So I think that's going to be wonderful that you're going to present that in such a transparent way. Yeah, I think it's always a good thing when, uh, especially when you're taking the public's money and you're, you're open and honest. I mean, We've seen the issues with the wounded warriors, with veterans. Period, where people have taken advantage of that. We we don't want to be that. We want to we want to take people's money and improve the policing, uh, the fire, the EMS, the emergency services within their community, and empower them to incentivize them to, you know, take care of their their own. And you know, people partition and categorize first responders like they're part of this, this system, but they're not, they're part of our community. They're, they're our peers, they're our neighbors, they're our friends and family. So uh, we need to get rid of these stigmas that, you know, whatever kind of media outlets have, have driven um, kind of like in the mindset of everybody in the, in the United States and, and stay away from that and uh, help these guys out, these, these men and women who, who do so much for us. How can other people get involved with this? So uh, we started a website. We're kind of we're kind of cherry to the the new routine. Um, we're we're putting our marketing ideas together. But our, our website is firstrespondersfirst.us. Um, so again, firstrespondersfirst.us. There's some mission statement information on there. I'll, I'll you know it's it's me and a couple guys on our on our free time just uh, grinding to get this done. Once we stand up the infrastructure, we'll start reaching out um, for donations and then. Uh, they can go on my social media pages on Instagram as well. You know, I'm, I'm at, at soft survivor, SOF survivor, but we started, uh, at first responders first on Instagram as well. And, you know, they could see these updates. They could see, uh, you know, all the events that we, we plan to hold for fiscal year 17. So, um, good things to come in the future. I wanted to mention also that, uh, I did get picked up by BCM by Bravo company. As one of their gunfighters, more to follow on that. We we're, we're working on some marketing stuff, working on some class stuff. But uh, it's an honor to be working with a company like Bravo Company, who kind of believes in uh, you know me and me and Aaron Baruga of uh, Gorilla Approach. Get, both got picked up by BCM, and our whole intent is to push this new mindset, new uh, 
process of doing training uh, where you're not canning training on on flat ranges so we get we got a lot of content that's going to be coming out here shortly kind of hopefully steering the tactical industry in a different direction than it's going so look forward to that and appreciate bravo company helping us out yeah congratulations on that i forwarded your instagram post on mentors for military i thought that was really exciting good news and can't wait to hear more about that as it you know more comes available awesome man thanks rob all right talk to you later have a good one thank you for listening to our podcast you can follow us on twitter Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.